Shameless Media. This episode of the Shameless Book Club is brought to you by Bailey's Irish Cream Liqueur, inspiring indulgence through me time moments. Hello, and welcome to the Shameless Book Club. Today, we are so excited to bring you this interview between Australian writer and critic Madeline Gray and one of our resident book clubbers, Sahani Gudatilika. Madeline Gray, who was working at a bookstore when her debut novel, Green Dot, took off and has already become an absolute crowd favourite. In this interview, Madeline and Sahani chat, of course, all things Green Dot, from how Madeline researched and came up with some of the concepts in the novel to Madeline's next project, which has already been picked up for screen. This is such a beautiful chat, which covers some fascinating topics. Madeline is so kind and thoughtful and shares so much of her mind with us in this interview. Obviously, we were already a huge fan of Madeline before this chat, which is why we picked Green Dot for our December book club pick. But after this interview, our love for her has rocketed to a whole new level. It was my pleasure to audio edit this, and I personally learned so much from Madeline, and I'm sure you guys will as well. Here is Madeline and Sahani. Hi, Madeline. Welcome to the Shameless Book Club. We're so excited to have you here because so many members of our team have read and loved your novel, Green Dot. Um, thank you so much. I'm thrilled. I'm mostly thrilled because my sister is a ginormous fan of your podcast and she thinks I'm a lot cooler for being on it. So I appreciate that. <laughs> That's very sweet. So for those at home who are tuning in and haven't read the book before, Green Dot follows a 24-year-old woman called Hera who finds herself falling into an all-consuming affair with an older man at work. One quote that really struck out to me was Hera justifying the affair early on. It reads, I feel myself feeling for her and for him, but I also feel for myself. I have parents who no longer love each other, if they ever did, and I truly wish they both had affairs earlier for my sake, if not their own. I wish one of them left. Sometimes a promise you make isn't a promise you should keep. So let me start by asking, why did you want to write a book about an affair? I work as a literary critic as well as a, a writer, and it's weird even to say I'm a writer because I've written one book, but I'll say it. I had been writing about intergenerational affair novels for a really long time in my literary criticism, and I just love the power dynamics that ensue when usually it's a younger woman sleeping with an older man and maybe in different times the kind of metrics of what they could get from each other would be different but we're kind of operating on a plane now where Mm -hmm. you know ostensibly you know women have work rights they don't need to marry someone to have money so why would someone who could potentially have any romantic entanglement choose this really heteronormative and kind of just normative trope of a relationship like what is it about an older man who's already taken that is so captivating uh for someone who yeah who could choose not to do that (laughs) I kind of yeah I was really into the idea of yeah just doing things that are a bad idea basically that's how it started Mm. So given there is a very complicated power dynamic at play here, how did you find the balance to write about it while not stripping a young woman of her agency? Yeah, so it had to be written from Hera's point of view. That was I always knew that from the very beginning because I didn't want, you know, the insights of Arthur, the, the married lover. I didn't want the insights of Arthur's partner, Kate, because 
it's a it's quite a solipsistic novel and to be in an affair you kind of have to engage in a certain amount of cognitive dissonance so it needed Mm. to be totally from Hera's point of view so that when she's building this world of obsession and love in her head we don't know if that quite tracks with what's actually happening in the world and I think anyone Mm. falling in love can can empathize and relate to the idea that it becomes the biggest thing in your mind that changes how you think about everything else. And in this particular dynamic, when it's such a taboo relationship, it's almost like that is absolutely compounded because you don't, you don't want to tell too many people about it. And so the narrative that you create in your head becomes literally all consuming. And, and because it's from Harris' perspective, that means that she can constantly reflect on the morality of what she's doing She's reflecting on how people are relating to, like how how her friends are reacting to her affair. And it's not that she's Mm. unaware of what she's doing. That's kind of the whole point. She knows what she's doing is wrong. But then I wanted to explore, okay, but does self-awareness mean that you're not morally culpable? No, it absolutely doesn't. So those tensions were things that I wanted to play with. Mm, I found it really interesting, like how self-aware Hera was, but also really delusional yeah, as well. Yeah. How did you toe that line while you were writing? <laughs> I think, ooh, that's tricky. I mean, I think I wanted it to go, because to me, the novel kind of goes into two parts in a way. I mean, I think it's literally in two parts, but but kind of vibe-wise. So the, the first half is someone, <laughs> the first half is someone falling in love. And then the second half, it takes a darker turn and it's someone who's trapped in her own mind. And so I wanted to keep it lighter in the first half and then kind of not trick the reader, but kind of gradually claw them in (laughs) and then go, boom, you're stuck on like a track that's Mm. going nowhere, like sucked in. (laughs) Um, And it works. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Like lots of friends have said to me, it's like watching a car crash. And I'm like, sorry. But Mm. I. And you can't look away. Exactly. Exactly. Or like picking a scab. So I needed there to be a combination of uh, like levity and humor because I think the funniest things in life are often the saddest and vice versa. But I also needed it to be, it it wouldn't work unless it was also earnest. And Hera does earnestly Mm. love this man and earnestly want it to work out. So it's not like the whole thing is a joke to her. There's not ironic distance, even though she kind of like suggests that there is to her friends so she can keep a facade of sanity. There is no ironic distance. This woman is in it. And and that's why telling it from the first person Mm. was so helpful because she's constantly... You can compare what she tells her friends with what she's actually thinking. Yeah. So you brought up the friends. <laughs> and there aren't many characters in this book, but I do want to touch on the periphery characters because there's a scene in the book where Hera's at a dinner party and is confronted about her affair by a distant friend. Mm. And it was seen as this great display of friendship when her other friends stepped in and asked that friend to leave. Mm. Why did you include that scene? Well, I wanted to show, so she has two best friends, Sarah and Soph, and I have been in so many situations where my friends have dated people that I dislike. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Who hasn't? Exactly. I think we all have, or that we don't, (laughs) that we're not a fan of. And what I wanted to look at was how far the kind of stretch of friendship loyalty will go. And in this situation, I I really wanted to pinpoint that even though Hera's friends do not agree with what she's doing, they think she's an idiot, they're not willing to put up with with anyone else (laughs) um, saying anything bad about it. It's kind of like, yeah, only you can, only Mm. I can insult my bestie. No one else can do that. 
Um, <laughs> and I, I also, yeah, I wanted that scene because because Hera's two best friends have been on the journey with her and they empathize with her and they know kind of how her cognitive dissonance works to introduce more of a peripheral character, Angela, who is not invested and just thinks it's wrong. I wanted to then see how those opinions mm. sparred and I just also love a, a dinner party scene. So I just wanted to write one of those. Mm. So in your opinion, what does being a good friend look like in a situation like this? Mm. I've thought about this a lot. Um, I think it depends on, on every on every particular situation. I think that loyalty and trying to understand where your friend is at no matter what is probably the most helpful thing you can do because in, in Hera's circumstance, we know that if her friends tell her not to do it, she's going to do it anyway. And mm. if they tell her not to do it or get angry at her, then they risk Hera isolating herself further and then when the shit hits the fan later she'll she'll be by herself I mean it's not the same as a domestic violence relationship but it it does have similarities in the sense that you can tell someone to leave but they have to figure that out by themselves otherwise they're not going to see it through so I think being a good friend in this situation is just loving them and you know gently telling them that like there are other Mm. options but, but never confronting them in a way that makes them so defensive, they'll cut you as a friend because that's not what they need. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think it's really dangerous to, like, villainize your own friend. Actually, like, now in books and pop culture, the other woman is often framed as that villain. Mm. They're often represented as seductresses and homewreckers. Did you subscribe to that belief when you were younger? I think, yeah, when I was... When I was younger, yeah, from just imbibing every popular culture representation, yeah, of a mistress, she's a, either like a Machiavellian witch who's doing it all for money or power, or she's like pathetic um, because she's like, a, you know, a little simp who will just wait mm. around for little scraps of love or affection. And what I've learned in writing this book, and, and now after it's come out and talking to people, is affairs are like more common than sliced bread, honestly. Like the amount of women and men who've come up to me Mm. telling me that they've been in affairs or their friends have is huge. And Mm. I wanted to extend empathy to to that person because, and I've said this before, I I see a a woman in an affair, at least, I I haven't dealt with the gender dynamics as much from, from a male perspective, but from a woman's perspective, it kind of does like epitomize like lovelorn hope that you're willing to degrade yourself in a way because you're waiting and you're not getting the love you deserve now for the hope of getting the love that you want later. And that's so sad. That's I think it's a really sad book and a really sad situation. Mm. So I've now grown to, to absolutely empathize with the other woman, but I did not start that way in life. You kind of raised this question earlier, but I'm wondering if you have an answer to it. Why do you think smart young women choose to have these affairs with older men? Yeah. I mean, there are so many different issues. I think for a lot of young women that I know, at least, there is the suggestion that we can do anything and be anything. And that's wonderful. And we love agency. But all of us also love taking the load off and having some kind of structure that we can fall into that we don't have to construct ourselves because that's a lot harder and so the comfort that is suggested in the idea of falling into a relationship with someone who's already established in their life 
who has maybe a home <laughs> or a job, uh, stability, those are things that are really compelling for someone who doesn't know what they're doing yet. And then I think on a second level, there's always a lure in having in wanting something that you can't have. Like that's just human nature. So something becomes more attractive when when it's off the table. So when you combine those two things, I think it's I can see why it happens. Mm. Another element you included in the book is Hera's queer identity. And when you said it's compelling to be with a man because of like all of the things that he has, like a home and the traditional Mm. aspects of it, I think her queer identity adds even more complexity to the dynamic. Why did you decide to make Hera's identity queer? What message were you trying to convey? Yeah, so basically a lot of the the books I've been reading um, that I was talking about earlier were about pretty much straight young women uh, falling into these affairs with older men. And what I wanted to do with Hera is make it so, yeah, she's queer, she's bisexual, and before Arthur she has only ever really been with women. And so what that means is now at age 24 her relationship with this man is, for all intents and purposes, her first foray into heterosexuality. So she Mm. is kind of learning the tropes of straightness as an adult and I think you know most people learn them if, if, they're, if they're straight or interested in, in the opposite gender growing up in adolescence and maybe have had a few trial runs before they get to 24 but mm. Hera's coming to it from a perspective of not really knowing how those dynamics work so what that means for her is I think she has more of a perhaps wrong uh, sense of her own agency and power because She's like, well, I'm playing this straight girlfriend, which seems funny to me because that's not who I normally identify as. And so therefore she thinks she can play with all the dynamics and and make it a bit of a game. And I then wanted to, this is a question that's raised in all the books I read and I hope in this one too, like how long does it take before you performing a joke just becomes your life? Like, yeah like committing to the exactly yeah is it if you're committing to the bit so much that it's just what you do every day (laughs) can irony said to be still standing (laughs) yeah that's such a good point so there's there was a conversation in the shameless office and i'd love to get your take on it some members of the team feel like in any affair the other woman owes the wife honesty while other members of our team believe the other woman doesn't owe anyone anything Mm. I'm curious to know, like, where you land on this after investing so much energy into the topic. Mm. Uh, I think that, yeah, again, it, it differs in every situation. I, I would probably come down more on the side of the other woman. I mean, I think she owes the the wife or the the other other woman uh, respect and to never do anything. I mean, apart <laughs> apart from like you know, fucking her husband. <laughs> Um, she, you know, never do anything that's like more untoward than that. But I don't think it's her responsibility to to tell the wife. I think that's the, the husband's or the mm. man's responsibility. He's the one who's breaking a an oath or a, or trust. Um, I've certainly talked to lots of women now who've, mm. who've said, you know, I was in an affair and I confronted the wife and I gave her all the letters that we'd exchanged over the course of our affair and I I understand that that like drive because you kind of want to be like I'm real I was here like if he's not telling her I'll tell her like you know because otherwise it kind of feels like maybe it didn't happen but yeah for me personally I think that's his (laughs) that's his problem to untangle (laughs) 
So did you say you spoke to people that had affairs as like research for the book? Yeah, as research for the book. But honestly, it's been much easier to get research for the book now I've already written it because now kind of <laughs> people see me, I guess, as like a non-judgmental person in which they can, you know, like tell me mm. their experiences, which is like a great, yeah, that makes a sense. great honor. But yeah, it would have been helpful two years ago, guys. <laughs> So how did you go about sourcing that? I feel like surely that would be hard. Surely people would be private about that. They are. I mean, yeah, they are private. So mostly my research, as it were, was reading novels. That's just where I get most Mm. of my research in life. But also I had, I did have already like a fair number of friends and and kind of friends of family who, who I knew had been in affairs and who weren't totally secretive about it. Um, they obviously were no longer in these affairs. Um, and I definitely just talked to them and asked mm. about their emotions and their their motivations and then how that affected their relationships going on. But obviously not in like a journalistic pen way, more like mm. a glass of wine and let's chat way. Yeah. So did you find that you had to unpack your own misconceptions and biases when you talked to people about it and when you were writing the book? Yeah, I think by the time that I was interested in writing this book, I didn't have, I'd already kind of stripped myself of any like inherent moral judgment about it. That that was not something I had to confront mm. straight away. But I did have to, I wanted to understand dif- different motivations. And then I also wanted to see different outcomes because a lot of the people that I talked to, like the man usually that they're in an affair with didn't leave his wife. But then occasionally they did. And then that person was now the woman I was talking to's Mm. partner. So I wanted to just get a track on on the diversity of of affair dynamics before I sunk my teeth into it. Guys, we are right around the corner from the end of the year. It is such a busy time for everyone, which makes it so important to take moments for ourselves. Baileys are the experts at adult indulgence and they want to encourage us to have a break in between the chaos. As the weather picks up, I have been loving sitting outside, soaking up the sun while enjoying a Baileys tiramisu over ice. This tiramisu flavoured liqueur is such a delicious treat. It has the same rich, creamy texture we know and love from Baileys, but with hints of chocolate, coffee, vanilla and subtle hints of cinnamon. Honestly, what is not to love? If you prefer something a little more warming, then I have to suggest the Bailey's Hot Chocolate Cake. It is such a great one for the festive season. The layers of rich cake sandwiched between decadent chocolate ganache are such a crowd pleaser. If you are over the age of 18 and are interested in an indulgent treat, head online or in-store to shop the Bailey's range. And as always, remember to drink responsibly. Thank you so much to Bailey's for making this episode of the Shameless Book Club possible. Something that's come up, I know, on like the main, like our flagship podcast, Shameless, Mm. is if they think like relationships born out of affairs would last in terms of trust, Mm. because obviously the way that relationship was born was after that breach. Like, what do, you, what do you think about that? I think that it is so, so tempting to think that anything that comes out of mistrust will no longer have integrity. But I have, ex- not personally, but I have, like, talked to p- women who have experienced the opposite. And it was just, like, two people who 
were meant to be together or felt that they loved each other a lot and their partner that they were with at that time was not the person for them and then they found that new partner and it had to kind of happen in a in a way that was not ideal but then it's love I yeah I understand obviously it makes sense if once a cheater always a cheater but but I don't think that's necessarily true Mm. one thing I really loved about this book was Hera's relationship with her dad Mm. I think it's the heart of the book and I have a really good relationship with my dad so I really love those parts Mm. I couldn't help but wonder though like did you specifically include that to show not all women who are morally gray quote unquote have daddy issues <laughs> um yeah absolutely I had to ask no that. <laughs> that's so true and that is a huge part of it yes because the assumption would be that if this woman's making all these terrible romantic decisions it goes back to some kind of Freudian yeah daddy issue where she's trying to get I the love I hate that stereotype oh it's so boring um and I yeah I also have a great relationship with my dad so what I wanted to do with with Hera was make her dad, like you say, the the emotional crux and and heart of the book. And so no matter what else is going on, she has this figure, this parental figure or father who just loves her no matter what and that she can share simple joy with. And then he's also like the litmus test of her (laughs) moral journey because if she disappoints herself or her friends, that's one thing and it's bad. But if she does something bad to her father who's this shining light of goodness then you know that she's really really taken the wrong path and Hera's mum mm. there's not like a lot of information about her I think you can kind of, there's like implications that there was a betrayal of some kind but was there a reason you left that part out like that elaboration yeah absolutely so I I definitely wrote versions of the book that had a lot more elaboration about you know the mother's betrayal and kind of because I thought, you know, that's backstory that people should have. Uh, and then when I did, it kind of, mm. it felt didactic. Uh, and it felt like I was kind of instructing mm. the reader to to see it all through a certain lens. So that choice was very conscious. And I do realize it's kind of an annoying choice. So sorry. I was waiting. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I realized that. But um, I, I wanted kind of that mother wound that Hera clearly has to be pliable for readily mm. effective connection. Mm. I wanted kind of people to take whatever pain they thought might exist there and, and kind of channel it as they would. Um, But yeah, I I have like a very specific backstory Mm. in my mind for sure. So yeah, you wanted to reach more people. Yeah, I wanted to reach more people. And I I don't know, I kind of felt like it was too simple to just say this is what happened. And so that it kind of felt more diagnostic, like this is what happened. So this is why Hera has these issues. It was kind of like to me, um, Mm. I don't know if you read Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, you know, the the fact that she never actually names the the pathology or the mental illness or whatever you want to call it in that book, I found really powerful because that dot, dot, dot resisted, Mm. yeah, the pathologizing instincts for whatever it is that the protagonist was dealing with. And the same with Hera. I didn't want it to be so cut and dry that you could go cause and effect. Yeah, that makes sense. So obviously I've done a lot of deep diving into this book. (laughs) I feel like everyone is reading Green Dot this summer and the Sydney Morning Herald even wrote an article about your book called Look Around, Everyone is Reading This Buzzy Novel Now on Buzzy New Novel. (laughs) What's it like to see your debut novel get so much love? (laughs) 
Uh, I mean, you look. You, she's getting so shy on camera. <laughs> I'm like sweating and going red. Um, it's it's so weird. Obviously, I mean, I, it's great. I for that article, I had to do a photo shoot, which I'm not familiar really? with. And yeah, the photographer was like, "Where do you want to do the photo shoot?" And I was like. I don't like the park near my house. Like I, I have no idea, mate. Um, and then I didn't know what to do with my hands. It's been a journey. Um, I, it's a, it's amazing. I mean, I worked as a as a bookseller while I was writing this book, so I'm really well aware that this is not the normal trajectory for a debut novel. Uh, so I'm just very, mm. very thankful. Um, but I've kind of had to take the whole thing on as a bit of a fever dream. Because if mm. I, I don't think I can quite accept that it's happening at every stage, like being in the paper, you know, talking to you, it's like bizarre. Like I was, I got some tweet from Caitlin Moran in the UK saying she loved my book, and I was like, "What the fuck?" Like it's really, it's really weird. <laughs> and a debut novel, no less, as well. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Well, thank you, but uh, don't know how it happened. <laughs> Do you have another novel in the works? Um, I do now. Yeah, it's only in its early stages, so I don't want to kind of talk about it too much. But it's it's more about a it's about two characters over the course of their lives, and it's a different kind of narration so far. At least maybe I'll change it. But I've been because with Hera, she's so much you know in her own head, and her voice is like the reason we care about her. And I wanted to I want to now play around with with different voices and um yeah getting a few more perspectives but I've only just started that because yeah I've been the the book's been optioned for tv and I've been writing the (gasps) screenplay for the for the television series so I've been spending a lot of time doing that that's so cool congratulations thank you very much it's it's bizarre have you written (laughs) have you written a screenplay before no Of course not. <laughs> I had to like Google how to write a screenplay, and then I then I downloaded this this technology called Final Draft, where like if you write stuff, it makes it look like an actual script. So I found that very psychologically helpful. I'm like, mm, I'm a screenwriter, um, but no, it's really weird. But it's, it's fun though. I love dialogue, so that's helpful. That's so exciting though. Yeah. Do you have like a lot of input in how it's also shown on screen? Or is it just a screenplay? Yeah, no, I do. So, I mean, I hope. We haven't started filming it yet, so maybe they'll be like, leave. Oh, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I did manage to, like, get, like, an executive producer title, so hopefully they can't kick me off set. But, um, yeah. it's, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting, though, because writing a book, obviously you're doing it on your own and you can kind of just do whatever you want. Mm. Uh, and with television, there's all these people and there's money involved. And they all have ideas. Of, and so you you kind of write something. You're like, this is good. Like, I'm a genius. And then, like, three people will come in and be like, no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> so that's been something to deal with, having other people's takes on my writing. I'm like, oh, this is different. That's so exciting, though. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's so cool for, like, an Australian author to get, like, that's just insane. I don't even have the words. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's very cool. So to conclude the interview, I wanted to do a quick fire round of questions. Okay. So the first one's easy. What are you currently reading? 
Um, I just finished Breeley's The Work, which comes out next year. <gasps> hasn't come out yet. No, it hasn't come out yet. I just got a proof. How is it? Uh, it's wonderful. It's about kind of the international art world and a romance that spans between New York and Sydney. And it's all about cultural capital and like the morality of trading in in cultural capital it's but it's also like a page turner it's really good i read it in like a day Ooh, in a day okay <laughs> and the next question is roughly how many books do you read every year oh my god i'm not good at maths but i read a lot of books i'd say i would read maybe like three maybe three books a week so times that by 52 oh that's quite a lot yeah yeah sometimes more because i also review books so that's like quite a bit. i just have to read them fast or else um I'm losing money. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Third question. What book would you recommend to a friend going through a hard time? I always recommend Less by Andrew Sean Greer. Um, He's an American writer and it's just a really funny book about this middle-aged gay man who is just broken up with his boyfriend or he's single and he decides to say yes to everything for a year and he goes to all these weird writers' conferences around the Mm. world and kind of has an adventure. But it's the most playful narrator and it's just impossible not to smile when you're reading that book. Nice. I'm going to add that to my TBR. Yeah, it's great. Uh, My last question is what book deserves more hype than it gets? Hmm. I, I say this a lot. I feel like I'm like the one woman kind of like bandstand for this book, but I just love The Animators by Kayla Ray Whitaker. She is an American author as well, and it came out a few years back and it just it got some praise, but it's so good. It's, it's about two women who meet at art school and they both become animators, as in the title, they, you know, do animated films. And it kind of, it's a queer story and it's also a road trip story and it's about childhood trauma and some of the best writing about women making art together that I've ever read. And I reread that like every year and very few people I talk to have heard of it. So that is a great book. Yeah, I haven't heard of that one either. Good. Well, it's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to review Green Dot on Book Club soon as well. Thank you. We're literally filming tomorrow. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, now you know me. You can't say anything evil. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Shameless Book Club. You can grab yourself a copy of Madeline Gray's latest book, Green Dot, via the link in our show notes. We will also be reviewing Green Dot on the 1st of January, so make sure to grab a copy before then and tune into our episode. You can also follow us on socials by searching at The Shameless Book Club on Instagram and TikTok. See you next time. Bye. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish 
stylish if you want to say it quickly, style-ish if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.